Good morning. A relatively smooth pass of the baton. Uh, yeah, it's great to be back with you. Um, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, in our home church in Istanbul, I was teaching the 6th and 7th grade Sunday school class, and we were talking about bullies. And I shared with them about uh, sort of the main bully of my life. Um, his name was Darren Decker. He was in my grade in junior high. Uh, we were the same age, but he was just an enormous kid. Um, sometimes when we were outside, he'd come up from behind me where I couldn't see him and get a running start and run as fast as he could and lower his shoulder right into my lower back. Um, I remember a day walking down the road after school. Uh, it was caterpillar season, and on the west side we have these really prickly ones, and there were just a lot that day. They, they were everywhere, and, and he, would, he was walking behind me, and when he would pick them up and put them in your hand, they'd roll into a little ball, um, and he just walked behind me pelting my back with caterpillars, and they'd explode in a mess of guts and itchy prickles. Uh, he was not a nice kid. Uh, he, he also had a horrible father. Um, I think he endured much worse at home than he dished out at school. He was full of anger and hurt and fear, um, though I didn't know any of that at the time. Um, well, after the Caterpillar incident, I told a good friend of mine about it named Jeremy Stowe. Uh, Jeremy was one year older than us. He was one of the most feared kids at school. He was a really vicious fighter. He had a genuine anger control problem. Um, and he talked to Darren for me. Uh, and Darren never bothered me again. Uh, I was not a Christian um, during any of this time, if you're, if you're wondering. Um, now, here's my question. Was the problem of Darren Decker solved? I, I certainly felt like it was at the time, right? He wasn't bullying me anymore. But was it truly solved? Had anything actually changed? And this is no. He was still the same kid with the same anger and the same hurt, right? One symptom had been dealt with, but the underlying problem was untouched. Well, a few months ago, our, the, our, our pastor in Istanbul was leading the, the whole church through a series in Nehemiah. And we were um, learning all about the experience of the exiles um, after they had returned from Babylon. Nehemiah is about 100 years later. They're trying to rebuild the wall, and it's all about the challenges and difficulties of trying to restore the city. Uh, and at the same time, I was studying the book of Isaiah in my own studies. Um, and it, Isaiah talks a lot about the exile and then the restoration after it and what will happen. And as I listened to sermon after sermon on Nehemiah, I kept asking the same question. Was the problem of the exile solved? And Isaiah is a great help to us here. See, in chapter 39, he declared, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. I mean, that because of their sin and their rebellion, the people of God were going to be carried off away from the promised land into exile. But in chapter 43, he promised the day would come when God would deliver them. So we read, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east. For your sake, I send to Babylon and bring them all down. Now today, we're looking at Isaiah 61. Um, but before we turn there, just glance with me really quickly at chapter 60. And imagine that you are in exile in Babylon. And you read this chapter. You see things like verse 2. Though you are in darkness, the glory of the Lord will rise upon you. Verse 3. Nations will come to your light. 
Verse 4, your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried on the hip, meaning the exile will return. You'll, you'll bring your kids back home. Verse 5, the wealth of nations will come to you. And just on and on it goes. They're going to have peace and abundance. Verse 21, your people shall be all righteous. They shall possess the land forever. You're in exile. What do you think as you read this? This is your hope, right? You cling to it. Look what God has promised. Finally, the day comes, right? Persia conquers Babylon. Cyrus, the new king, says all the exiles can go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, rebuild the city, right? For 70 years in exile, you have been holding on to passages like Isaiah 60. And now God's fulfilling it, right? So, so what are you thinking as you're traveling back to Jerusalem? What are you expecting is about to happen? Well, now imagine you're living in Nehemiah's day, and you read Isaiah 60. It's been almost a hundred years since the initial exiles returned. As you read that passage, what do you think? How do you feel? Right? They're free from the exile, but besides that, the blessings of Isaiah 60 just seem light years away. Why are they not experiencing this? When, when we're dealing with great problems, we tend to focus on the immediate cause. We want to fix what's wrong in the moment. But all the bad stuff in the world, why does it happen in the first place? We have to ask that question personally and cosmically. Right? Israel's sin and rebellion forced them into exile. In his grace, God brings them back. Has the problem truly been solved? Evil, pride, the desire to dominate others lead to wars all around the world. We look at Syria and Iraq and Nigeria and on, and we want the wars to stop. Right? Maybe the UN can put on enough pressure to stop things. Maybe someone wins, they subdue the other side. Peace returns, everybody or at least some people rejoice. Has anything truly been solved? Put yourself in the book of Nehemiah. It's the mid-400s B.C. And as you stand on the wall to rebuild it with a trowel in one hand to work and a sword in the other to protect you against a threatening army, how do you feel about Isaiah 60.10? Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. Right? Or as you hear that the surrounding nations are plotting to come together to kill you, how do you feel about verse 11? Your gates shall be open continually. No dangers. Day and night they shall not be shut. You see, there is an exile under the exile. A bigger problem that is under all of our other problems. And as we work through Isaiah 61, we learn who, what, why, and how God is going to solve the fundamental problem facing each one of us and our world as a whole. Um, we're going to read the passage. Before we do that, just let me make one little note. Um, translating is really difficult. Um, any of you who speak multiple languages know that, especially if they're not tightly related. Because languages just work differently. Languages think differently. And one of the things that that means is when you're translating, you often have to make a choice. Do I make what the original said really, really clear? Or do I make it sound, in the language I'm translating to, the way it would sound in the original language? And sometimes you can't do both. Meaning sometimes to get clarity, you've got to create something that in English would just be bad English. 
And so different translations tilt in different ways, right? Um, that's why you get things like the New American Standard that's just really choppy. It's, it's awful English, but they really want to show you kind of what was there. But the Bible's actually not awful writing. It's really beautiful writing, so they, they kind of miss that. And then you get other translations that really try to make it excellent English, but then sometimes you can't tell exactly what's there. The reason I mention that is that it, this comes up in verse 7, and it's important. In verses 5, 6, and 7, whenever you read the word you, it's talking about Israel. But all the they's are talking about the other nations. And it's really clear and really straightforward. But it's also full of the passive voice. And English doesn't like the passive voice. Right? I'm sure you had English teachers correct you on that in school, say it in an active way. We're an assertive people. Right? Um, and so, in verse 7, it, instead of saying, instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion... It doesn't say that. It says, instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. And it wants to make it better English. And what that obscures is that after that, the they's in verse 7 are the other nations. So just remember that as we read. Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, they, all the other nations, will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs." For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness." As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Okay. First, who? We see that God's answer to the greatest problems facing our world is a person. And in verse 1, that person begins to speak. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, and we have met him before. In chapter 11, we were introduced to this great, Davidic, kingly, messianic figure, and there we're told the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, and this descendant of, of David will bring God's rule to the earth. He will bring justice. He is a powerful figure. But then in chapter 42, we're introduced to another figure, the servant, and again we read, I have put my spirit upon him. But this figure is very different than the Messiah promised earlier. He does not lift his voice. He is gentle. He will be a nurse to the sick. 
And this creates a great tension in the book of Isaiah. We're told about this powerful, kingly figure, the Messiah, who will bring justice in the first half of the book. And then in the second half of the book, we are told about this humble, gentle figure, the servant, who will be like a lamb led to the slaughter. Who are these two? How do they relate? Well, Isaiah 61 shows us that they are one and the same. Right? The servant who will bind up the brokenhearted is also the victor who will release the captives. The, the one who will bring comfort to the mourners is also the one who will bring down God's vengeance on his enemies. And this is perhaps Isaiah's greatest theological breakthrough. The servant is the Messiah. And just look at the incredible variety of things this man will do. In the first four verses, we're told that he will fix poverty, sadness, slavery and oppression, the righting of wrongs, grief and mourning, sin, and ruined cities. He will fix everything that's broken. Injustice, sin, oppression, fraud, poverty, sickness, everything that has been torn down by human sin will be restored. Right? There is something of cosmic significance about the work of this man. You see it in the sheer variety and scale of the things he will accomplish, but you also see it in the language that's used. Right? Verse 4 says that because of this man, God's people will build up the ancient ruins. Now, the word that's translated ancient is the word eternal. Isaiah uses it to speak of God's everlasting covenant with his people in chapter 24, to say that God is the everlasting God in chapter 40. He'll use it again in both verses 7 and 8 in our chapter to speak of eternal realities. And while it can sometimes be used figuratively just to speak of, th- to speak of things that are ancient, you can't understand the word just to mean old. So why does Isaiah speak of eternal ruins? It's because there are ways that our world is fundamentally broken and has been ever since we were cast out of the garden, right? There is an exile under the exile. There is a brokenness to which all the ruins of this world point. And it is on this deeper brokenness that the last chapters of Isaiah focuses because something more is wrong. So something more must be done to fix it. A man will come who is able to restore the eternal ruins of our world. So the first thing we learn is that the essential answer to the problem of our lives and the world is not a system of belief or government. It's not a philosophy. It's not a kind of education. It's not a process of peacemaking. It's not a program. It is a person. And I think to a great extent, we innately understand this. Look at our literature, our myths, our movies. What's at the center of almost every great story? A hero, a rescuer, right? Someone who will come and set things right. Or just think of your own life. When you're in trouble, when you're desperate, what do you look for? Do you look for a new idea? Do you look for a great philosophy? You don't. You look for someone who has the power to help you. These last chapters of Isaiah, they are looking forward to the time after the exiles have returned from Babylon. They were free, but so much remained the same. Their fundamental positions not altered. They still live in a broken world. They're still trapped by their own sin. They're still in hostile relationships. 
And is this not exactly what you often experience after some problem in your life is solved? So much remains the same. Because the one who could rescue them from the great human exile of sin and death had not yet come. The problem had not yet truly been solved. The answer was a person. Well, if the first section tells us who, the next section, verses 5 to 7, tell us what. What will God do to fix what's wrong with our world? Well, he will bring about a reversal of the present reality. And this in two very distinct ways. The first reversal has to do with blessing in the place of curse. Right? From the very beginning, God told mankind, if you turn away from me, you will die. Right? And if God actually is the source of all blessing and all life, then to turn away from him could mean nothing less than that. Israel's whole history is a picture of that reality. For years, they've been living in shame and dishonor, and here God promises them joy and blessing, the reversal of the curse, the undoing of the fall of mankind into sin. Well, the second reversal, that has to do with the position of God's people in relation to all the other nations of the world. And instead of the other peoples oppressing and mocking Israel, they will be vindicated and victorious. Because to assault and denigrate the people that God has chosen is to assault God. And so thus the vindication of God's people is a part of the vindication of God. So Isaiah proclaims the day when foreigners will serve God's people tending their flocks and vines. Now, this leads to a very obvious question. Right? Is he saying that the oppressed become the oppressor? Right? Will humiliated Israel rise up and humiliate others? Right? Will God's people be freed from slavery so that they can enslave others? That's how real life works. We know that. World War II, the Germans commit just unspeakable atrocities as they march into Russia. Well, what happened when the tables were turned? The Russians repaid them in kind and then some pillaging and raping entire cities as they marched on Berlin. It's part of the struggle that international leaders have as they think about, gosh, what can we do in Syria? The current regime's done a lot of bad stuff, but you sort of look around at the opposition parties and there is little hope that any of them would be any better. Jerry Sitzer talks about this dynamic on a very personal level in his book, A Grace Disguised. Uh, a drunk driver had killed his mom, his wife, and one of his daughters. In an instant, three generations of the most important women in his life wiped out. And in, in this book, he talks about what it was like, looking back after years later, what it was like to walk with his remaining children through that grief and loss. He writes this. In one instance, David, then seven, crawled up on my lap late at night, long after his normal bedtime. At first, he just sat there. Then, hesitatingly, he began to express rage at the drunk driver. He cried with anguish. He said that he wanted to punish that man and make him hurt as much as he had hurt us. He said that he wanted to make the whole world suffer so everyone would feel as bad as he did. After he stopped crying, we sat in silence for a while. Then he said, you know, Dad, I bet someone hurt him too, like maybe his parents. That's why he did something to hurt us. And then I bet someone else hurt his parents. It just keeps going on and on. When will it ever stop? Isaiah tells us. See, while Isaiah is clear that Israel will be vindicated, look at the outcome that he envisions. 
Verse 6, the nations will call God's people ministers and priests of the Lord, meaning God's people will have brought truth and salvation to all the nations. So Isaiah says in verse 7 that the nations will have everlasting joy, which is exactly what he had promised Israel back in chapters 35 and 51, meaning that the promise made to Israel is extended to all the nations. He says Israel will receive a double portion. And then he says exactly the same thing about the nations of the earth. You see, when God's people are vindicated, the result is not the subjugation of the world, but the reconciliation of the world. In the place of enmity, there is peace and mutual blessing. And because there is only one true God, that must involve all the nations submitting to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is no other. But they do not come in as slaves. They come in as co-heirs of the promise. Because of our selfishness, we often view the world as a zero-sum game. There's only so many pieces to the pie, we think, so the more you get means the less pie is left for me. Any economist will tell you that is false in all kinds of different realms, but it's how I think we think most of the time. Isaiah tells us the zero-sum game will end. The enmity, the competitiveness, the oppression that exists between people in this world will end. So what will happen when God rescues us from the ultimate exile? There will be a full reversal. Instead of God standing against us in judgment, he will stand for us in blessing. And instead of us standing against each other in competition and oppression— We will serve each other in peace. Who will do this? The servant. What will he do? He will reverse all that is broken. Okay? But why? These are remarkable promises. Why would God go to the trouble? If the world is so broken, if we as people so depraved, if our societies are so lost, why would God not just wipe the world clean? See, most of us, we are so accustomed to speaking of God as Savior that we don't even ask that question. We take it as a given. It is not a given. Why would God do this? Verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery, and iniquity. Simply put, God does not like things the way they are. He will not accept it. He will not leave it alone. It is not enough for him to simply do away with it. His nature drives him to fix it. And as people made in God's image, I think we've all experienced a taste of this. You, You see people fleeing from their homeland, their lives destroyed, and you know it's not right. Right? You know it's not the way things are supposed to be. They should be able to live and work in peace. You want to be able to fix it. Right? You see someone struggling with an eating disorder. Some beautiful young person convinced that they're ugly, and you want to intervene. You want to be able to make them see things rightly. You hear of the poor being taken advantage of, 12-year-old girls being sold off as the second and third wives for the pleasure of evil men, and you want to rescue them. You want them to experience the life that God intends. This is not the way things are supposed to be. 
uh, in the movie Grand Canyon, which I really don't recommend as a movie, um, a driver's car breaks down in the midst of a tough neighborhood. Uh, as, as the tow truck finally arrives, gang members are closing in on the car. And the tow truck driver and the leader of the gang has a, have a confrontation. And the truck driver says, Man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude's supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Where does that sense come from? Why is it that when we see injustice, we know that things are broken? Why do we object to the strong eating the weak? That is certainly not what nature would teach us. Annie Dillard wrote about it. She went to live by a little stream called Tinker Creek. She won a Pulitzer Prize for the book she wrote about the experience. And she wanted to learn from nature. Instead, she saw death and oppression, the strong devouring the weak and then both getting wiped out by chance. She gives just countless examples. In one, she writes this. She says, look at lacewigs. Lacewigs are those fragile green insects with large, rounded, transparent wings. The larvae eat enormous numbers of aphids. The adults mate in a fluttering rush of instinct, lay eggs, and die by the millions in the first cold snap of fall. Sometimes when a female lays her fertile eggs on a green leaf, she's hungry. She pauses in her lane, turns around, and eats her eggs one by one, then lays some more and eats them too. She, she looks at the world of nature and she draws an analogy. It's a great analogy. She says, say you're the manager of the Southern Railroad. You figure that you need three engines, three, for a stretch of track. It's a mighty steep grade, so at fantastic effort and expense, you have your shops make 9,000 engines. Each engine must be fashioned just so, every rivet and bolt secure. You send all 9,000 of them out on the runs, but no one's manning the switches. The engines crash, collide, derail, jump, jam, burn. At the end of the massacre, you have three engines, which is what the run could support in the first place. There are few enough of them that they can stay out of each other's paths. You go to your board of directors and show them what you've done, and what are they going to say? They're going to say, that's a heck of a way to run a railroad. Is it a better way to run a universe? Nature loves death more than it loves you or me. This is easy to write, easy to read, and hard to believe. The words are simple, the concept clear. But you don't believe it, do you? Nor do I. How could I when we're both so lovable? Are my values then so diametrically opposed to those that nature preserves? This is the key point. I had thought to live by the side of the creek in order to shape my life to its free flow. But I seem to have reached a point where I must draw the line. Look, cock robin may die the most gruesome of slow deaths, and nature is no less pleased. The sun comes up, the creek rolls on, the survivors still sing. I cannot feel that way about your death, nor you about mine, nor either of us about the robins. We value the individual, and nature values him not a whit. It looks for the moment as though I might have to reject this creek life unless I want to be utterly brutalized. This direction of thought brings me abruptly to a fork in the road where I stand paralyzed, unwilling to go on, for both ways lead to madness. Either this world, my mother, is a monster, or I myself am a freak. In essence, she's saying, look around you. Is anything more natural than for the strong to prey on the weak? Of course not, right? Lions don't hunt other lions, they hunt cute little antelope, and they look for the weak and sick ones because they're easier to hunt. 
So why do we all object when people do this? Why do we know this is not the way things are supposed to be? Well, it's because this is not the way things are supposed to be. And though we are deep in sin, we have not completely lost touch with the nature of our Creator. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. God does not accept, will not accept, the current state of things. He will fix it. Okay, where are we? Isaiah is showing us how God's going to rescue us from the fundamental brokenness of the world, the exile under the exile. Who will do it? The servant. What will he do? He will reverse the present reality, bringing blessing and peace in the place of curse and hostility. Why will God do this? Because God's nature can't accept the current situation. And that brings us to the last two verses. How? How will God do this? He will bring righteousness. He will bring it to individuals. He will bring it to the entire world. Verse 10 tells us, He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. And that's justification. Right? So how will God rescue us from our sin? He will cover us with his own righteousness. Well, okay, but how exactly will the servant do that? The word instead is critical in our passage. Example, verse 3, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Verse 7, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Meaning the servant will take away from us what is rightfully ours and give us what he deserves. We saw that already back in chapter 53, where we're told he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is substitution. He stands in our place so that we can stand in his. That's what the hero does, right? He gives his life to save the other. But this is not just for Israel, and this is not just for individuals. This is how God says he will bring his blessing to the entire world. Verse 11. As the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So how will God fix the world? By sending a servant who will take what we deserve so that we can be clothed in the righteousness that he deserves. Now, that sounds wonderful. But for some of us, there's still probably some lingering doubt. Okay, you say, I can see why the Jews in Nehemiah's day were still struggling so much. They had been freed from the exile in Babylon, but this servant had not yet come. But what about now? Jesus is the servant. He has come. But isn't our experience still an awful lot like the Jews in Nehemiah's day? Well, when Jesus began his ministry, he quoted Isaiah 61. He stood up, and he read it, and then he said, Today this scripture's been fulfilled in your hearing. Right? He's fulfilled it. He's the answer. He's the one. He rescues us from the exile under the exile. Why, then, is the world still so messed up? Why are we? Well, Jesus pointed to the reason in that initial sermon. He quoted Isaiah. 
I'm going to read what he quoted, but look at the initial verses of Isaiah 61. Follow along there. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Did you notice it? That is a strange way to quote Scripture. Because Jesus stops his quote in mid-sentence. He's quoting Isaiah 61, and right in the middle of the sentence, he just stops reading. Isaiah reads, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And for God to fix the world, he must do both. He must bring his favor to save his people and his vengeance to right every wrong. And in his first coming, Jesus came to do the former, but not yet the latter. The day of vengeance still awaits us. And listen, friends, you can't have an end to brokenness without final judgment. Because it is judgment that does away with sin. And it is sin that causes all the problems. And the day is coming. But until it does, we live in between the ages. Jesus has already come. He's already rescued us from sin and death. But the brokenness in the world remains until he comes again. And we live in the tension in between. Let me, let me end our time just really practically. As you're confronted by your own sin or as you're suffering because of this fallen world, where do you turn? What, what do you run to? Actually, actually think about it. What is your tendency If you truly want healing, you need to turn to this man. Your only ultimate recourse is a person. There are a lot of good programs, good books, good things to do in order to grow, to change yourself, to change this world. But if they are not utterly bound up with the person of Christ, they are insufficient. There is no program, there is no truth, there is no system that can fix what is wrong with us. Christ can. He has. He is. And did you notice there is not a single command in this chapter? In speaking about the restoration of the world, we're not here told to do anything. Closest thing you get is verse 10. I will, regret, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord because this is our first response. Rejoice in God and in the servant he has sent. More than you need to do anything, you need him. You need to understand so well what he has done for you that your soul exalts in God. He is what you need. See, Isaiah knew that the rescue from the Babylonian exile would not be enough. That there is a deeper exile that every person in our entire world is subject to the exile under the exile. This is our fundamental problem. And God has solved it by sending the servant to absorb the curse and clothe the world in righteousness. Rejoice. The Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Amen.